or transient. That God, we would repent of those things and trust fully in You and in Your Word that endures forever. God, may You be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church family, let me invite you to take God's Word and join me once again back in the Gospel of Matthew. After several weeks away, we come back to our study of Matthew's Gospel, the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. As you're getting kind of reoriented uh, back into the Gospel of Matthew, let me just remind us of where we have been uh, thus far in Matthew's Gospel. Maybe just specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in chapter 5, you recall, it begins with those Beatitudes, those nine declarations of if you are truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then these are the things that are going to mark your life. In fact, the entire sermon uh, from the Lord Jesus, this Sermon on the Mount, the entire sermon is declaring the King has come, the kingdom has been established, and this is what life inside the kingdom looks like. And so once you move past the Beatitudes into the second half of chapter 5, you find Jesus there saying, hey, this is how you practically daily in your lives live out these beatitudes then you maybe let your eyes fall to Matthew chapter 6 and you've got various practical issues that Jesus is teaching on in that chapter you remember that we saw there issues about giving and prayer and fasting about trusting in the Lord and not worrying taking on all of the worry and anxiety onto ourselves and then today we come to chapter 7 this final chapter of the sermon on the mount and once again we find some various issues of instruction here Uh, chapter 7 contains instruction more instruction about prayer Uh, chapter 7 the entire second half of chapter 7 is a series of contrast contrast between different kinds of fruit different kinds of ways that people live different kinds of foundations that people build their lives upon these are weighty matters in chapter 7 some of the most well-known words from the Lord Jesus Christ are found in chapter 7 these are important practical weighty matters for our practical lives as we seek to live for the Lord Jesus Christ Monday through Saturday not just merely in this room on Sunday And chapter 7 begins in these first six verses also with a weighty matter for us to consider. As we consider that issue here before us of specks and logs and critical spirits. Look at the text with me. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge... You will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The text begins with what has become a bit of, as the culture now says, a bit of a trigger word. The word judge there in verse 1. And that word judge and the call not to judge in verse 1 sets the, the framework for our study of this passage this morning. And so we're going to be thinking about that word judge. What does it mean to judge or to not judge? What does Jesus have in mind for us here? How should we practically apply this to our lives and in our relationships with one another? A lot of questions begin to pop up as we consider what's being said here. So what I want to do for us as we walk through these six verses is I want us to be thinking about kind of this, this idea of judging. And so I want us to look at three features of, judgment, of judging or of judgment here as we seek to understand God's Word. So let's look at three different features here. Number one, in verses one and two, we see a right definition of judging. We want to understand what Jesus is driving at here, and so we want to get a right definition of judging. Look again at those first couple of verses. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. This is one of those verses, and it doesn't take you very long uh, out in culture, sometimes even in the life of the church. This is one of those verses that people seemingly have no problem just kind of reaching into God's Word and ripping it right out of its context. And so you, no doubt, have been around people before, maybe uh, your neighbor, workplace, whatever, at school, just out and about, and you've heard people say things along the lines of, hey, don't judge me. You, you, can't, you, don't, you don't know me. You can't judge me. Maybe they even boldly proclaim, no man can judge me. Maybe they even are so bold as to say, no man can judge me, only God can judge me. Incidentally, they then often live their lives as if God won't actually judge them. But that is the declaration that they make. And often what happens is that verse, and they'll say, hey, the Bible says don't judge, right? And clearly, verse 1, chapter 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged. They take that to say, hey, I want to live my life how I want to live my life. I don't want to be accountable to anyone to any organization, to anything. I want to do me, and you don't get to look at my life and tell me that what I'm doing is in any way wrong. Even sometimes, within the life of the church, you might hear people say, well, I mean, I, I know what they're doing, and I, 
yeah, it's, it's kind of wrong, but, but the Bible does say we shouldn't judge people. I'm afraid that even within the context of the church, that oftentimes chapter 7 and verse 1 might be taken out of context. We shouldn't judge. It's not for the grace of God. So go I, right? We, we say those things. Often though, we say it and we take it out of its context to free ourselves of the responsibility to actually hold people accountable. The world uses that taken out of context verse to say, I don't want you to hold me accountable. And sometimes in the church, we take that verse out of context to say, I don't want to hold anybody accountable because that's uncomfortable. So then, in its proper context, what does Jesus mean in verse 1 when he says, do not judge? The word judge there in verses 1 and 2, it means exactly what you think it means. It's not a complex word. It's not a complex meaning. It, it means to divide. It means to separate or to make a distinction. It means to pass a sentence of judgment. So simple word, simple concept, so then we're still plowing through this in our minds, so then what does Jesus mean when he says not to do this? To not make distinctions, to not make a separation, to not pass a sentence of judgment. Does Jesus mean that his people, the church, that we should never under any circumstances judge others? That we should never, under any circumstances, make a distinction or pass judgment in any way? Are we just supposed to always kind of let bygones be bygones? Let people live however, believe whatever, teach and preach whatever they want? Well, it, it doesn't take us long, even moving through the text of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1-6, to 6, to find that it's not exactly what Jesus is driving at here. He's not saying that there are never moments where we don't make distinctions. All throughout Scripture, God is a God who makes distinctions. And all throughout Scripture, we find that it is the people of God, under the truth of the authority of God's Word, who are also called to sometimes make distinctions. Look down in verse 5 even. We'll get to this verse in a moment, but Jesus here in verse 5 is setting the precedent of going to our brother and helping to remove the speck from their eye, right? So clearly we see that there are going to be times where a brother or sister in the Lord, that maybe there's a speck of sinfulness in their lives and we want to go to them and help them. Let your eyes fall down to verse 16. Jesus is saying in verse 16 that we're going to be able to know people by what? By the fruit of their lives. We're going to be able to make a distinction, a judgment decision based on the fruit of their lives. We're going to be able to determine to the best of human ability, according to the scriptures, are they born again or not? Think about the Apostle Paul later in his New Testament writings. Paul is going to make distinctions between true teachers and false teachers, true believers and false believers. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to call God's people to do the same. So, it is not actually biblically accurate to say that Christians never judge, that we are never called to make a distinction. 
we understand that the final determination of judgment, that the final sentence of judgment uh, of another person, that, that doesn't belong to us. That ultimately belongs to God. But Christian, in some capacity, we are called to make distinctions. But then again, what do we do with chapters, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2? What does this prohibition then actually mean? Well, as we consider the entire context of this passage, what unfolds for us is a prohibition where Jesus is calling us against having an overly harsh, an overly critical and judgmental spirit within us. What we're being called to, beloved, in verses 1 and 2, is to not carry around in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts about other people, that we are being called to not carry around an attitude that is just looking to judge. That's looking to pass some kind of sentence of judgment. We're being instructed here in verses 1 and 2 to not have a heart that is eager to critique others. That it's not eager to nitpick and to find some little slight, some little fault that we can really kind of press in on when it comes to others. What Jesus is condemning in verses 1 and 2 is not all judging, not all judgment, but what he warns us against is our own heart that's eager to find fault in others while all the while ignoring our own sin. Jesus is telling us in this passage that being critical of others, that it's actually not a spiritual gift. That it's actually not a fruit of God's Spirit within us. We're being reminded in the passage today and in this call to not judge, we're being reminded that a critical fault finding spirit it is really evidence of great pride and arrogance in our own hearts. Because when we're critical and when we're, when we're nitpicky, when we love to press on the bruise of somebody else's fault, what are we doing? We're elevating self to say, I'm here and uh, I'm in a position of great holiness and sanctification to be able to look down on you, poor pitiful little sinner, and tell you all the places in your life where you got some problems. How arrogant must we be to position ourselves as such? Uh, J.C. Ryle comments on this and says this, what our Lord means to condemn is a fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference. It's a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them 
this is what the Lord forbids. Don't walk around, verse 1, with a judgmental heart. Don't walk around with a spirit that is just eager. Can't wait to find the faults in others. Can't wait to be the Holy Spirit of God to somebody else and say, look at all the places where you're messing up in your marriage and in your children and in your walk with the Lord. Jesus here is forbidding a hard attitude, beloved, that assumes the worst about people. And it assumes the worst about their motive instead of believing the best about them as 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 calls us to do. You remember that? Love believes all things. And what Paul means there is that it believes the best about one another. When we think about especially one another in the life of the church, beloved, do you immediately assume the worst? Or do you fight to assume the best? And what Jesus is calling us to in verses 1 and 2 is to be humble and generous and gracious toward one another so that as we interact with one another, we're always just believing the best and not assuming the worst. So do not judge. Verse 1, look at the text again with me. So that you will not be judged. This is a proverb essentially. It's an axiom here. If you walk around with a critical fault-finding spirit, always nitpicking, you know what's going to happen to you? Others are going to do the same to you. And then he expands on that in verse 2. Look at verse 2. For in the way that you judge, in the way that you approach people, in the way that you believe about people, in the way that you make distinctions with people, in the way you judge, that's how you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, that's how it's going to be measured to you. We typically always want more grace than we give. And what Jesus is calling us here to do is to give more grace than sometimes from others we even get. To just give grace. To give room for people to grow in the Lord. To let God be God in their lives. To let God do His work in His time in their hearts. To not be easily frustrated when people seem to be slow in their sanctification. When they seem to keep struggling with the same patterns and habits and words and ideas. To not be so quick to rush to judgment about them. About where they stand with the Lord. About what the Lord might be doing in their hearts in ways that we can never see. With a reminder here 
that if we don't give a lot of grace, we probably shouldn't expect to receive a lot of grace. Because if the standard is no grace and no mercy, guess what other sinful people, guess how they're going to interact with you? No grace and no mercy. Whatever standard of judgment we're using, whether it's comparing it, you know, comparing others to yourself, comparing other people to, you know, maybe other you know, saints that have come before. Whatever the standard of measurement is, Jesus is warning and saying, hey, you just need to understand that more than likely that's how it's going to get turned around and that's how you're going to be judged. If you want grace, give grace. If you want mercy from others, grant mercy. If you want them to be patient with you, be patient with them. And as we give grace, mercy, Patience. Beloved, does that not show them the way that the Lord has first dealt with us? In giving us grace, mercy, patience. If you are in Christ this morning, if the blood has been applied, then do you remember right now that you don't stand judged before God? You don't stand condemned before God. Your judgment and condemnation is on the cross of Christ. So then, the overflow of our lives and our interactions with one another ought to be grace, mercy, patience, forgiveness. As we understand a right definition of judging. But secondly, what else are we seeing in the text? We see, secondly, a right demeanor. A right demeanor in our judging. So we're going to kind of come to verses 3 to 5 here, and Jesus is going to call us at some point, down in verse 5, that there is going to be a time at some point where we might need to go to a brother or sister. There might be a speck of sinfulness there that we want to help them with. What is our demeanor when we do this? Now, I want you to understand, in verses 3 to 5, I, I wish, I wish, I wish that we were able to somehow have a picture of Jesus' face as he is saying what he's saying in verses 3 to 5. Because I think the reality is that Jesus may have had a smile on his face as he walked through these three verses. Uh, what Jesus is doing here is he is being intentionally outlandish. He is intending to create almost a comical scenario to show us what our heart's demeanor should be when we approach others. So look in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I can't help but think Jesus, growing up as a carpenter's son, maybe even having given himself to the work of carpentry, I can't help but think that in this moment, Jesus is reflecting on some days, some moments, some scenes 
from his time in Joseph's carpentry shop. When he mentions specks and logs here in verse 3. The word speck there. It is a minute, just a, a little bitty splinter, little small, almost insignificant little piece of wood. It's a, it's a small, minute part of a wood shaving that would fall harmlessly to the floor. Just a little sliver of wood. Maybe if it gets in your skin, it's a little irritating. Maybe it's a little problematic, but it's nothing compared to the log there in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your brother's eye. When Jesus uses the word log here, he's not talking about maybe just a slightly bigger piece of wood. He's not even talking about, you know, maybe like even like a large tree limb. When Jesus talks about a log here in verse 3, he is talking about a massive support beam in a house or a structure. Something like what you look up and see in this room, in these support beams. If you were to make your way up to the catwalk, don't do that. But if you were to go up there, you're going to find these massive construction beams. They're, they're heavy. They're long. They're, you, you can't miss them. It's not a splinter. It's not an insignificant thing. It is a massive support beam. And without this support beam, the entire structure crumbles upon itself. It's a joist. It's a foundational, long, thick, heavy beam. And I want you to notice what Jesus is doing in verse 3. Why? Why? When you've got this massive plank sticking out of your eye, why are you spending time getting all up in somebody else's eye to try to kind of find, I think I see a little speck of something in your eyeball. When you, you're walking around with a massive plank sticking out of your eye. Jesus is intending to create a funny picture here. Look in verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me, let me get the speck out of your eye, and behold, there is a log in your own eye. I mean, there's a picture here of you and I walking around with this massive beam, just like protruding from our head, right? And we're trying to get up close to people and to point out the speck. And we're just whacking them everywhere we go, right? Like this beam just hitting everything and tearing stuff apart. And isn't this how it works when we don't give grace? We walk around with this beam sticking out of our eye. Judging, overly critical and fault-finding. Pointing out everybody else's problems. Hurting people. Causing scars and wounds because we're not given grace and mercy and patience. And we're just beating people up with this 
plank that's sticking out of our eyes. It's just outlandish. It's the point that Jesus is driving at here. It's just outlandish that we would pay attention to somebody's minute splinter while we've got a massive eye beam protruding from our head. It's absurd to think that we could even see a speck in somebody else's eye with a massive log sticking out of our own eye. It's absurd to think that someone would even be in a position to criticize or judge when they've got this massive plank sticking out of their eye. And just in case we haven't called on to what Jesus is driving at here, when he's mentioning specks and logs, he's talking about sin in our lives. He's talking about issues where we fail. He's talking about those moments when we say or do sinful and hurtful things. He's talking about the moments when it just doesn't come out of our mouth in the right way. So that's what he's driving at here, that spiritual reality and calling us to take the demeanor, the attitude, the posture and position in our own lives where we first do what? Where we deal with our own sin. Verse 5, you hypocrite. If you've got a plank sticking out of your own eye, but all you're concerned about is that almost insignificant speck in somebody else's eye, Jesus says you're a hypocrite. You're, you're playing a part. You're an actor on a stage. You're wearing a mask. You're not really serious about holiness. You're not really serious about sanctification. Look at yourself. Look at what you're doing. There's a plank in your eye. You're killing everybody as you run around with your critical spirit. You hypocrite. Stop. What does he say to do in verse 5? First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Isn't it easier to see everyone else's fault while ignoring our own? The Puritan John Flavel said this, it's easier to declaim against the thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. It's just reality, right? We, easily, we more easily see the faults and sins of others than we do our own sins. And it's easier to point them out in others than it is to kill even just one in our own heart. But what is Jesus calling us to do in verse 5? Take the log out of your own eye. Jesus is calling us to humble ourselves. Calling us to step off of that pedestal of judgment that we've placed ourselves on. And to deal with our own sin. To deal with our own transgressions. To confess to repent, to do the work of putting off sin and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then, when you've done that work, when you have prayed, when you have sought the Lord, when you have applied God's Word to your own life, then you may go to your brother. Because now you can see. Now you can see clearly, and you'll need to see clearly. Because this is a delicate matter. It's a delicate matter to go to someone and say, hey, I love you, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this in your life. I'm hearing this from your mouth. I'm watching this in your attitude. I'm seeing this pattern sort of begin to set up in your life, and I love you, and I don't want this to be true for you. I want to warn you. I want to ask you to consider the Scriptures, to consider God's Word, and to live rightly. It's a delicate matter to do that. A necessary matter, one that is uh, potentially difficult and uncomfortable, even among people who love one another, but we're clearly called to do this from time to time. Especially as we see a brother or sister in unrepentant, open sin. But, beloved, always remember this, that you and I are always sinning, therefore we should always be slow at judging. We are great sinners. John Calvin once said that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Since we are always sinning, we should always be slow at judging. I would remind us of this as well, that if we find ourselves preoccupied with our own sanctification, with our own confession of sin, with our own repentance, you're not going to have a lot of time left to be overly harsh and critical and judgmental of others. A person who is overly critical, who is fault-finding, who nitpicks, a person has entirely too much time on their hands. And that time could be, should be, according to the Scriptures, better spent dealing with the log in their own eye. Those who are the most harsh against the faults of others are often the most lenient against their own sins. Beloved, don't exaggerate the faults of others while minimizing your own sin before the Lord. So what is your demeanor then? As you consider verses 3, 4, and 5, is it harsh? Is it critical? Is it nitpicking? Is it judgmental? Is it plank ignoring? Speck finding? Or is it gracious? Generous? And forgiving. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's a glory. It's a good, honorable thing to overlook an offense. So then, what is your demeanor? Finally, verse 6. Third feature here before us. A right decision for judging. A right decision. Sometimes we have to ask the question, what do I say? When do I say it? To whom do I say it? Should I say it? Should I not say it? Sometimes it's just difficult. So verse 6, Jesus gives this 
instruction. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. When Jesus says, do not give what is holy, and when he mentions the pearls, that language of holy, of pearls, it's pertaining to the truth of God's Word. This is language of calling people away from their sin and to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mentioning the sacred things of God's Word. Everything from the the full, beautiful, rich story of the Gospel all the way down to how the Gospel impacts little particular areas of our lives. And Jesus says to not do what? To not give what is holy to dogs and to not cast pearl before swine. When He mentions dogs and swine, what's the idea here? When He mentions dogs, He's not talking about little Fido sitting in your lap at home. It's not how that, that language is used in the New Testament. And when the people that uh, Jesus is originally talking to here, when they hear him say dogs, they think uh, a wild pack of ravenous, scavenging, mongrel dogs that are running around on the outskirts of the city. They're dangerous. Dogs would become synonymous with unbelievers with those who are violently opposed to the things of God. When Jesus mentions swine, pigs, maybe the the Jewish audience would have almost shuddered when He mentioned it. Because for them, there's nothing more unclean than a pig. You don't eat it. You don't even touch it. It makes you and everything that it touches unclean. It's what makes the story of the prodigal son so shocking. That this nice Jewish boy from a nice Jewish family is hanging out with the unclean pig. Again, unbelievers. And not just people who are merely unbelievers is Jesus' point here. But He's driving at those who have made it abundantly clear. I have no regard for holy things. I have no regard for for the pearls of God's truth and wisdom. I don't want to hear it. I reject it. Don't talk to me about that stuff anymore. What does Jesus say to do? To not cast your pearls before the swine and that you are free to move on, to go to others. Jesus would tell His disciples in Matthew 10, verse 14, that if they reject you, essentially knock the dust off your sandals and move towards someone else who will hear. Jesus is calling us here to trust God's sovereignty. That God will do the work in His time. That we don't have to berate them. We don't have to keep beating them over the head with a Bible. We don't have to keep always pointing out every problem in their lives, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. They will say vile, disrespectful things about God and His Word. They will turn on you. And look, the reality is we're willing to take that. 
for the cause of Christ. We're willing to take that for the sake of the gospel. But Jesus is offering here that as we are speaking truth into others' lives, when it becomes clear that they just don't want to hear it anymore, you're going to love them, you're going to serve them, you're going to pray for them, but you are then free to move on and to take the holy pearls to others. And so then, this frees us from having to stop in one place or fixate on one person always pointing out their problems, always nitpicking them. Listen, you don't, you don't have to nitpick every person. You don't have to nitpick every idea you see on social media. You really are free to hit next and move on. You don't have to engage every conversation. You don't have to dive into every argument. You don't have to correct everybody's theology. There may be times where that's necessary. But I don't think anybody's been saved off of social media because a Christian was nitpicking them to death. I don't think that's ever happened. So it frees us from being nitpicking busybodies, again, who ignore our own sin while easily finding it in others. Beloved, how does this need to settle into your heart? How does this need to find its way into the nooks and crannies of our church body? How do we need to confess and make our critical fault-finding spirit right before God? Listen, I want to ask you again to remember the way that God has dealt with you. Nobody, nobody deserved judgment more than you or I. Nobody, nobody had more fault than you and I. But what has God done with it? Nailed it to the cross. You are clean and forgiven in Christ. The blood has been applied. Judgment has been what? It has passed over you, dear saint. So then, in our interactions with others, let's give that same grace. Give that same mercy and forgiveness. Some of you might need to do that in your marriage. Some of you might need to do that in your children. You might need to do that with somebody on the pew with you, whatever the case may be. As we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper together, let's take these things to the Lord in prayer. And let's respond appropriately and obediently to the Lord together. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, as we are considering these truths, Lord, there is much here. Father, we're confronted with maybe our hypocrisy, our willingness to deal with others' sins but not our own, our willingness to nitpick and stick our finger on other people's bruise. dig around in their eye trying to find some kind of speck while all the while ignoring 
this obvious, blatant sin in our own lives. And God, in that, we have forgotten the gospel. In so doing, we have forgotten, God, how you have dealt with us and how you continue to deal with us. God, you don't sit on your throne knocking us about every time we sin. You you tell us truth. God, maybe even sometimes you would discipline us. God, always for our good, always for our sanctification. And God, you never, you never condemn us. You're never harsh or critical with us. For all of your harsh wrath has been poured out at the cross of Christ. God, this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper together, we take these visible reminders into our hands. God, help us to remember what has been accomplished for us. And then, God, that we would live out this grace and mercy toward others. God, that you would make us soft, generous in our dealings with one another, gracious and kind. Lord, as we come now to this next moment of worship, God, help us to take rightly. Part of doing that will be, God, making sure that the way that we interact with others, God, how you call us to in the text before us this morning, and we ask and pray it in Christ's name.